stronger than our sin, stronger than our sin, and new every morning. Your mercy is so wonderful. Your grace is so sufficient. Thank you for what you've done for us. That sacrifice that you made. this morning as we continue to worship you through hearing your word preached. And then as we take the Lord's Supper, may our hearts be focused completely on you, open to what you're calling us to do. And may we respond completely to this. We ask it in Jesus' Now, that doesn't sound like a really big deal. 
But what, what Jesus, Jesus is doing there is recognizing that John the Baptist is very close to coming to the end of his life. And, and they've, they've been, been out together in the wilderness, wilderness baptizing, and people are noticing that more people, people are going over to Jesus than to John the Baptist. We talked about that last week. And, and Jesus, in just subtle greatness, walks away from that, recognizing that John's job is to point everybody to me. But I'm just going to walk away in the twilight of his ministry and let him have a little more. And he, and he walks, walks away. What a beautiful picture of, of, of the, the compassion and the care of Jesus. It goes on and says in verse 4 that now he had to go through Samaria. If he's going to, to Galilee, he had to go through Samaria? Not at all. Jews and Samaritans had this horrible relationship among each other. And so whenever a Jew would go through Samaria, there was great hostility and opposition. That's why Jews, instead of going straight up north to Galilee, they would go to the east over the Jordan River, up the side of the east side of the Jordan, and then back in to Galilee. And it says, why? Well, geographically, it's the easiest way, but it's not the normal way. It's not the best way. Why is he going? Why does he have to go? Another subtle reminder. He knows there's a woman there. There's a city there. The gospel that he is bringing, the good news and so he does. And then in verse 5, it continues on and says that he went down to a town in Samaria, Sychar, near the plot of the ground. Jacob had given to his son Joseph. That's where Jacob's well was. And it says Jesus was tired as he was from the journey. He sat down at the well. It's about noon. That little word, tired. What we're about to see is Jesus exerting enormous energy to minister to this woman and later to the people that would come out. And it tells us here, John says, Jesus was tired. But even in the midst of his fatigue, he ministered to those who came with such love and compassion. Have you ever been kind of irritable and someone called you out on it and uh, then you kind of pass it off and said, oh, I'm just tired, as if that's, that's okay. We all... And his disciples run to find something for them to eat. And the Samaritan woman came to draw water. When she did, Jesus asked, will you give me a drink? Something significant is going on here. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. There's two strikes against us having any conversation here. Jews didn't like Samaritans, Samaritans didn't like Jews, and men did not talk to women in public. Did you know that there was a law that a man couldn't even talk to his wife in public? And so this lady is trying to size it up and saying, wait a second, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, why in the world are you asking me for a drink? And John very graciously puts in parentheses, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. He wants us to understand what's taking place here. And Jesus answered her, 
if you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I want us to frame this conversation because it's a really familiar story in the Bible. And if we're not careful, we'll just kind of race through it. We'll just hear the words and the interchange and all that. But you know, just picture it. Jesus is by himself when this woman comes to the well. Why does she come in the middle of the day? And we're going to find out later her story and why she's there in the middle of the day. Just the two of them there. And in his exhaustion, he begins this conversation with her. And we, we kind of picture it as this conversation going quickly. But it evolved. She's bringing her, her bucket. It's a five-gallon bucket. It's a, it's a jar, but basically what it is, it's a, it's a five-gallon bucket. And, and we know what those are like, right? From Harvey and all the different floods that we've had, even in the freeze. I mean, we've carried the five-gallon bucket from our neighbor's pool or from our pool or wherever it's been and use that to flush toilets. We know what that's like. So that's what she has. Weighs about 40 pounds. And she's there trying to get the water, and this guy's talking to her that shouldn't be talking to her. And she says, sir, and we're going to find out what kind of lady she's been, is because she's been married five different times, and she's living with a guy now. And so she's used to guys talking with her, and she's thinking, this guy's just jacking with me here. Sir, you have nothing to draw, and the well is deep. Buddy, I don't see a bucket in your hand, and that's a deep well. How are you going to pull out some living water? And then this question, are you greater than our father Jacob, the one who dug the well? That is such an important question for all of us. Is Jesus greater than your livelihood? Is Jesus greater than your comfort? Is Jesus greater than our portfolio? Is Jesus greater than our special interest or our time or our family? It's such an important question. And Jesus is going to answer that. He's going to let this lady know that, yes, he is greater than Jacob, way greater. And he has something greater to offer than what this well has. He's going to say, I can give you greater life and greater joy and greater purpose. And it's not just for her. It's for all of us. So important for us to recognize. And Jesus is going to explain all of that. Verse 13, it says, Jesus replied to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is an incredible statement. She's out here to get water. She is. She is worn out. She's tired. She hates the fact that she has to come out at noon because all of the other ladies would come out either early in the morning or just before the sunset in the cool of the day, either way. But because of her reputation, the other ladies wouldn't have anything to do with her. They wouldn't have any conversation. She knew what it was to be isolated and rejected. So here she is all alone coming out there to the well. And Jesus is saying to her, listen, I can give you something that will never make you thirst again. But she's still not buying it. It's like, right, you don't even have a bucket. 
this is a deep well. Are you going to like lay a pipe down to my house so I don't have to come out here anymore? And he's saying, I will put something inside of you that will never make you thirst again. The concept of water was a real big one in the Bible. We have a tough time understanding that. I mean, even when we have very difficult experiences, even like the freeze, when people may, may not have water, we can usually find water somewhere, bottled water. But in this culture and environment, water was very scarce, and it was dry, and it was desolate. And it was used throughout Scripture to remind people that so oftentimes we try to satisfy our thirst in ways outside of God. It was a metaphor. In Jeremiah chapter 12, when, when the prophet was speaking to the rebellious people of God, he says, you are digging your own cisterns, meaning that you're trying to find your satisfaction apart from God, and your cisterns leak. What is thirst? It's when we are not finding our satisfaction in God. It's much like salt water. You can, have, you can be out in the ocean and you can drink as much salt water as you want, but it will never satisfy you and it will ultimately kill you. And Jesus is saying, Ben, what you're drinking right now, it's killing you. And I want to offer something that will give you life. The woman said, all right, I'm buying. Give me whatever water you have so I don't have to keep coming out here to draw the water. And we, we kind of picture like, oh, she's walking the aisle. She's about to make her decision. And she's just saying, okay, you're going to give out this great water? Load me up. And then Jesus changes the conversation. What's so unique about this conversation is how many different times it transitions in a different direction. And so he has her now, okay, give me that water. And it says in verse 16, go call your husband and come back. She's like, what does that have to do about the water stuff? And some of us would say, okay, what's Jesus doing? Is he trying to make her see her sin? Yes. Oh, wait, though. Jesus would never do that. But it's been appropriately said, without sin, the gospel is not good news. Until we recognize our sin, we will never experience good news. I think that's one of the reasons so oftentimes we hear in our culture, don't judge me. Don't cause me to look at any sin in my life. And you see the way that our, our culture is both very ripe for the gospel, but very resistant. Because in our culture, we are right now pointing out the sins of Everybody at any point in time in life. Everybody's sins are being exposed. Yet people are saying, but don't expose my sins. Don't judge me. And what's taking place there is we don't want to have to deal with our own sins, but unless we recognize that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, there's no need for the gospel. We will never embrace it. Charles Spurgeon said something that helps us to get a, get a sense of this. Spurgeon said, he with the rope around his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned. That's pretty significant. If you are on the gallows with a rope around your neck, knowing it's all about to end, when you receive your pardon, 
there is great joy. And so Jesus is helping her to see that she is trying to find her satisfaction away from God. Go call your husband. Now he has her attention. Wait a second. I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right. Fact is, you've had five husbands. And the guy you're with now, your boyfriend that you're living with, he's not your husband. And then she tries to turn the conversation like we so oftentimes do. Let's get it off of my sin. She says, sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. In other words, let's talk about church, not my sin. Don't we do that? And Jesus says, no, until we talk about your sin, you will never experience this eternal life that I want to give you. And Jesus replied and said, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And it's not going into a theological conversation. He's not going with her in that direction. He is redirecting her attention, and he says, salvation is from the Jews. To say that God is bringing his Messiah, his Savior, through the lineage of Abraham, his people. And a time is coming when true, true worshipers, worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus was saying it's not about location. It's about the object of your worship. And remember that he is speaking to a woman that has not yet experienced eternal life. He's talking to a non-Christian, so he would say. So this isn't a big treatise on worship. He is saying, you will never experience true worship until you recognize the truth that Jesus Christ is our only hope, that he is our Savior. And then you receive his spirit inside of you, and then you can worship. It's not about which mountain you go to. The, the Samaritans, in fact, had built a, a, a pretty significant temple on Mount Gerizim. And it was a, a competitive temple in contrast to what was built down uh, in the southern part of the kingdom. And Jesus was saying, it's not about Jerusalem. It's not about Mount Gerizim. It's about your heart of accepting the truth of who I am and your need for me and receiving me as Lord and Savior. The woman replied, <clears throat> the woman said to him, I see you're a prophet, and our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that their place that we must worship is in Jerusalem, and Jesus responds to her, and she comes back and responds to all that by saying, deflecting the conversation again, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Again, she's deflecting. What is she doing? See, the Samaritans believed, just like the Jews, that a Messiah was going to come. And when the Messiah came, that Messiah, he would explain everything about God. He would give them new intel on who God is. And, and she's basically saying to him, okay, well, one day a Messiah is going to come and he's going to explain everything. But, but until then... Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. Until he gets here and explains everything, everything's up for grabs. 
Sound familiar? And Jesus responds by saying, I, the one speaking to you, the only one, I am. And that certainly got her attention. Because in the Old Testament, God identified himself as the great I am. And Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, the one that you're looking for. And I'm the only one, the way it's written in the original language. Jesus really has her attention now. But the disciples show up. Almost feels like an interruption. And it says that they they showed up and they were surprised. But it says no one asked him, what in the world are you doing? They all were thinking that. Why in the world are you talking to this Samaritan woman? What Jesus was explaining to this woman is, I want to offer you a greater life. I want to ask us the same question. Are we experiencing the greater life, the eternal life that God wants to give us? This woman in her life thought that was basically all there was. Hadn't played out the way that she had hoped. Here she was, disillusioned, isolated, feeling very much alone. And Jesus says, I want to give you a greater life. He wants to give each of us that too. And then he wants to give us greater joy. We look down here at verse 32 when the disciples come back. And they're saying, Rabbi, eat something. You're obviously delirious. You're talking to this woman from Samaria. When they had left him, he was hungry and tired. And it's now he's energized and excited. And Jesus replies to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. The disciples like us, if we were there, I mean, we would do the same thing. And they start looking around like, did somebody call a waiter? Amazon Fresh? Go through the drive-thru? What, what, how did he get any food? Someone slip him a taco? They're wondering, how can he be so energized? Where, where's this food that he's talking about? And then Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And right in the middle of all of this, the woman leaves. She leaves her bucket. And the way it's written in the original language says that she ran back to the city. And she left her jar because she knew she was coming back. She didn't forget it. She knew if she carried it, it would slow her down. She knew if she carried it full, it would really slow her down. But she was coming back. She was running to the city to say, I think I have found the one who has called the Messiah and invited everyone to come back. And while she is gone and the city starts to come back, Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying, listen, guys, there's something far greater than food. And the food that they're talking about is a lot different. The food in their time was a lot different. They didn't have the abundance. I mean, during COVID, I have gone to the pantry way too many times. It's so convenient. It's so plentiful, obviously. But they didn't have that. 
food was scarce, and so the question is, where in the world did you get the food? We get so excited about food. I, I am thankful that I am married to a woman that is not a foodie. I mean, we eat. It's nothing fancy. It's fine. But our culture is so enamored with food. I, I remember probably wasn't 20 years ago when I was first exposed to the, to the terminology of presentation on a plate. All I knew growing up that I understood now is it was a good presentation if the food was touching each other because that meant you had plenty of it. And we take pictures of food like they're our children. And we post it and we talk about it. And we get so enamored with the food. And here Jesus is taking his disciples back to the time that he had fasted for 40 days. And he said, you remember what I told the devil? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's one of the beauties of fasting. Literally, physically fasting from food. And we're going to have 21 days of prayer and fasting starting on March the 15th, ramping up to Easter. doesn't mean that you need to fast all 21 days. You can if you want. Go for it. But fasting reminds us that when our stomach is crying out to us and we're hungry and all we can think about is food, is that there's something greater than this. Jesus wants us to live like that. He offers us this greater life, this greater joy, and he offers us greater purpose. Look what Jesus says here in this conversation with his disciples. They're still baffled. They're kind of hesitant to pull out their, their little tortilla. I'm not sure if it's okay to eat right now. And Jesus takes them on another journey. He's already told him he's got some food somewhere in his robe, behind the rock. Don't know. He's got some other food that's energizing him. And then he says, you guys have a saying. It's still four months until the harvest. You know what that means? What the saying is? We really don't have to do anything right now. It's four months until the harvest is here, and then we'll really uh, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle it then. And then Jesus says, but look, the fields are ripe for harvest right now. Was he looking out and seeing some, some granary that was ready to be picked? Maybe. It was getting close to the, the time of the first fruits. But probably what he was talking about is all those Samaritans that now were making their way back to the well. And Jesus was saying, we are about to see a harvest. Get ready. What Jesus wanted his disciples to realize is we've been called to greater purpose. It's not just to study the Bible. Incredibly, indispensably important. It's not just to talk about it. It's not just to become more informed, but to be used by God, to be a part of the harvest, sharing the gospel as Jesus so beautifully demonstrated with this woman sharing the gospel with other people and inviting them to enter into eternal life where they will be filled from the inside with living water. They'll always be satisfied. 
doesn't mean that life won't be hard, but you will have the satiation of the Spirit of God living inside of you. Greater, greater life, greater joy, greater purpose. So as we draw this to a close, we ask the question, do you have what Jesus offers? This greater life, this greater joy, this greater purpose that other people can see. I think one of the things that we so desperately need today is for people to be able to see a Christian and realize there's something different about them. We go to this verse in, in verse 42 in which this, the Samaritans have come back out with the woman now. And so interesting in the original language, as I said earlier, it, it demonstrates that the lady ran to the city, and then it says that the people basically ran back. So she ran to the city and told them, I think I have found the Messiah. And they say, unbelievable. So they run back to see who it is. And it says in verse 42 that the people said to the woman, we no longer believe because you told us. We have now heard for ourselves, and we know that he is the Savior of the world. See, we'll never experience greater life or greater joy and greater purpose until it's ours. Not that we're riding on the coattails of our church or our parents or some trusted friend, but when it becomes real to us that we receive the truth of who Christ is and invite his spirit to live within us. The word that is meant there, we now know, it literally means we are convinced beyond any doubt. Have you gotten to the point of being convinced beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ is our only hope? Let me tell you about a a lady who experienced the greater life, the greater joy, the greater purpose. And her life is a very unusual story. At just six weeks of age, a doctor made a mistake, and it permanently cost her her eyesight. In that same year, her father died. So she would be raised by her mother and her grandmother with no male influence in her life. Because of her blindness, that would create shyness. It would feel somewhat isolated from other people. It wasn't until her late 30s that she met a man that she would marry. In the second year of marriage, they had a child, but that child died in infancy. And everything that we have discussed so far would say, wow, she must be totally immersed in darkness. But Frances wasn't. She followed a poetic statement that she had made at the age of nine, in which she wrote, oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world, contented, I will be. We know her as Fanny Crosby. She would write over 8,000 hymns and spiritual songs. At the age of 44 is when she started writing all of her music. One of those songs that we remember is Blessed Assurance. At the age of 53, a friend of hers named Phoebe Knapp, who is a very uh, accomplished musician as well, 
who also wrote over 500 hymns and songs. She came by with a, with a new tune. And she sat down with Fanny Crosby and she began to play it. After she'd played it a couple of times, she said, Fanny, what does that melody say to you? The 53-year-old Crosby responded, it says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And with words flowing from her heart, she began to quote them off as Miss Knapp wrote them down and as was the case with so many of her herald songs, she finished it in less than an hour. wonder why. Because she had so much scripture in her head, in her heart. By the age of 15, she had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and the four Gospels. She could have quoted everything that we've talked about today. And that story, that song that was written in 1873 just reflects all that we've talked about, about God's greater life and greater joy and greater purpose. Think of the backstory. Phoebe Knapp was married to Joseph Knapp. Joseph Knapp was one of the founders of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. And you think of the twist about a blind lady declaring visions of rapture now burst on my sight and composing that song with a life insurance tycoon's wife painting pictures of God's glorious provision for those, the beneficiaries of his eternal life. We're going to sing that song in just a few minutes, but it's a picture of someone who has received blessed assurance. Have you? As our deacons make their way down to the front for us to experience the Lord's Supper and to celebrate the greater life, the greater joy, the greater purpose that we have in Christ, might I remind all of us again, God loves us and he's created us to have a relationship with him. But just as Jesus pointed out to this woman at the well, until something is done about our sin, we can never experience that. But thankfully, Jesus Christ came to liberate us from the power and the penalty of sin. All we have to do is humbly repent of our sins. Ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of our life that will forgive us of all of our sins. It's full surrender to Him. If you've done that, I invite you to join in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Those of you that are joining us online, I hope that you have your elements. If you don't, you can use this moment right now to, to receive elements. But I want us to take just a moment to, to pray, prepare our hearts for this. And if you've never received Jesus Christ, his great life, great joy, and great purpose, I hope you pray a prayer similar to this. Lord, as we contemplate all that you have blessed us with, we thank you so much for the opportunity to listen in on this conversation and to see the desperate need that all of us have for you. Lord, if anyone has never received Christ as the Lord and Savior, I pray that today they would pray a prayer similar to this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins 
and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have. And I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, as we take this time to remember the great sacrifice you made to give us the greater life, the greater joy, and the greater purpose, I pray that we would truly celebrate the sacrifice that you have given for us. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we have done before, we're going to ask you to put on your mask and come to the front to receive the elements. And the elements are in two cups. The, the cracker is underneath the juice. So just gently pull the, the top cup off and you can access the, the little wafer in there. And if you would just come forward, receive the elements, go back to your seat, and we will all uh, receive the elements together in just a few minutes. But whenever you're ready, just make your way to the front and our deacons will assist you in getting the elements. Those of you at home, uh, I hope now you will collect your elements together there and prepare to join us in the Lord's Supper.
Gary, would you lead us in prayer, please? Jesus would demonstrate exactly what he shared with this woman here when he would later take bread and would say, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' blood, his blood, became that living water that's why he said, this represents the sacrifice I make for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you now stand together and let's sing this great hymn, Blessed Assurance.
my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior. story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior. that that's your story, each and every one of you, that you have received the greater life, the greater joy, the greater purpose that only comes from a personal encounter relationship with Jesus Christ. And now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you, through the power of Jesus Christ, all that is pleasing to him. God bless you. You're dismissed.